Hi everyone, this is the Supported Sobriety Podcast. I'm Matt, and I'm in recovery from an addiction to pornography. And I'm Katie, and I've been married to Matt and supporting him in his addiction for four years. We created this podcast to bring hope, healing, and greater understanding to both men struggling with pornography addiction and women who support someone struggling with an addiction. I upload episodes for men with pornography addictions. And I upload episodes for the women who are supporting their loved one. We share real stories from members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but anyone is welcome to listen, and we believe everyone can benefit from finding peace through Jesus Christ. We hope that this podcast can bring you closer to Jesus Christ and help you on your journey of recovery and healing. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Supported Sobriety. Hey, hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Supported Sobriety. Before I get into the episode, I just want to say that Katie and I are excited to announce that next week we will be doing something new for our episode. Um, We will be doing answering questions that we got at a fireside um, a few weeks ago that we did for a ward. And we thought they were just really great questions, really thoughtful, and just realized a lot of other people are probably wondering these same things. So we decided we will make it a purely Q&A episode where we answer questions and let you know what people are thinking about because I'm sure you're thinking about the same things. In addition to that, Katie and I would like to open up the form. It's an anonymous form. It's the same one we used at this fireside that I'm talking about. And we're going to open it up for all of our listeners. So if you are listening today in the notes for this episode, you'll find a Google form. Go ahead, jump on there, ask any question you want, and we will try to get to as many of them as we can in that episode. So I'm really excited about that, and I hope that uh, you ask your questions and let us know what you're thinking. As always, you can ask us uh, anything or reach out to us in any way that you want. Um, that, that sobriety podcast at gmail.com email that's in the show notes as well. So this episode, I'm really excited about this because it's an episode that I feel like I have wanted to do since I launched this podcast. Um, I wanted to talk today about finding a sponsor. And to do that, I interviewed my sponsor, Jace. I have known Jace for a long time, and I'll get into his introduction a little more later. Um, But he answers in this episode a lot of questions that I get typically about finding a sponsor. Um, But there were a few that I wanted to answer before we start this episode. So just real quick, I wanted to answer a few of the most common questions that I get from people when they reach out to me. They're either new in the program or looking for a sponsor or just wanting to know what that is. And so Jace defines in this episode what a sponsor is, when to get a sponsor, um, some of the intricacies of sponsors and what to do uh, in order to like use them to their full potential. Um, But I wanted to answer how to find a sponsor. I think finding a sponsor is something that can be done a million ways. Um, But what I have seen is that the more initiative and the more action that you take, the better. So my first recommendation is to go to meetings. I know they're online right now. It's hard to see the people. um, You're not with them. But I think that is an amazing place for you to go and find someone. Definitely the facilitator will be probably further ahead of you in sobriety. But chances are there's going to be at least a few other people there who have, um, I don't know, three months, six months, 12 months under their belts and would be willing to sponsor you. And I think it's something where you can just kind of shout out in the meeting like, hey, um, I'm looking for a sponsor or like, you know, Jim or Bob, could you stay afterwards? I'd love to ask you a question. I know as a facilitator, I often stay afterwards to ask questions to connect people with sponsors. So those are a great place to go to find a sponsor. Um, My second recommendation is to ask around. Ask any connections that you have, any buddies, bishops. Feel free to reach out to me at this podcast. Um, Ask around of, you know, different people that will be willing to sponsor. My final recommendation is to make a list. The first thing on that list should be what you are looking for in a sponsor. And the second thing on that list should be who 
you know in your life that could be a sponsor. So uh, make a list of, you know, I want someone I can be vulnerable with. I want someone that uh, is further ahead of me in the program that is like, I don't know, a member of this church or something like that. And um, these are the names that I have, Jim, Bob, Joe, and Matt. And those are kind of the three names. And then just kind of rank them and uh, go after it. Uh, Jace talks about it in this episode, but there is a power um, to being vulnerable and asking someone, will you be my sponsor? So I think that's an amazing thing to do. So make a list and then go for it. That's how I would find a sponsor. And I think the more action that you take, the better it will be. In addition to that, I just wanted to say a few things that sponsors do that I have found extremely helpful. Um, One is they are an accountability partner, um, someone that you can reach out to daily, weekly, um, every time you have a relapse, stuff like that, where you can have a person to be accountable to because that is a key in recovery. Sponsors also offer a greater deal of experience, like more experience than you have. And so they can answer questions, help you go through the steps, super helpful in working through the steps. They can answer questions that you have um, just about kind of your recovery, where you're going, all this stuff. Um, In addition to that, sponsors can be really understanding because oftentimes if you choose a good one, they have gone through it themselves. And so that's something that I have found extremely helpful. I also believe that once you choose a sponsor, um, it doesn't have to be your final sponsor. And if you find someone that just works better for you, go with that person. I've had a lot of people that I've sponsored that I um, know later on, they kind of do like an accountability partnership with someone who's kind of more at their level and that works really great for them. Or um, someone that's kind of doing, having their wife be a sponsor like me, uh, then I moved on to um, having Jace be my sponsor. And I just think, go get a sponsor, get a support person, and make it as good as you can. Make that list. Find the best person you can. And then don't be afraid to um, find someone that works better for you. It's all about fit. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Jace is going to answer all of your questions about sponsors. If you have any more, let us know in the Q&A. Um, let us know. Email us. Ask us any questions that you've got. But I hope that you enjoy this episode. Like I said, Jace was my sponsor. He's got a lot of experience. Over four years being a sponsor. Seven years in the program. And uh, I'm excited to have him on the show. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, Jace, how are you doing today? Doing great. So excited to be here. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to have you on here. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about your family, about what you're up to in life right now? Yeah. So let's see. I am, uh, I'm in my early 30s, married, and I've got four kids. So it's a pretty exciting house around here that never a dull moment. Um, I am a tax accountant which is uh, as boring as it sounds, but uh, it pays the bills. And it's, that's very busy right now, of course. We're recording this in March. So uh, the tax deadline is approaching and, and we're working extra hours. But uh, you know, that's the life, life I chose. Thankfully, I live pretty close to work. So I get to come home for lunch and some things like that that help keep it more manageable. Yeah, but that's pretty much our lives right now is, is the family and work. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, for my listeners that don't know, I'm also in tax accounting. And so Jason and I are both living that kind of busy season life right now, working some kind of crazy hours and just kind of looking forward to the end of tax season. So that's cool. Yeah. And so your kids, what are the age ranges with your kids? Yeah. So my oldest is eight. She's in second grade uh, okay. all the way down to uh, an almost two-year-old. Mm-hmm. So pretty well spread out. So we've got two in school and a third starting next year. That's awesome. Well, wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's a pretty fun range. That's right. I forgot that my first, my oldest is your youngest age about, we had him like just yeah. a few weeks apart. 
Yeah, I remember being in the meetings and having them both down on the floor on their yep. blankets, you know. Yep, it's classic. Yeah, definitely awesome. Well, that's cool. It's good to kind of learn a little bit more about you and um, kind of put a person behind the mic. So why don't you, why don't we switch gears and why don't you tell us a little bit just about your addiction, um, kind of where it started and just tell us kind of where it went uh, kind of from there. Sure. Yeah, I don't think my story is particularly unique, although mm-hmm. that may be because I've just heard a lot of people's stories by now. But um, mine, I actually sort of kind of discovered it. I know sometimes people are exposed to it by other people or by accident. I just sort of like, I've always had a vivid imagination and kind of as I hit puberty, that sort of tended towards a sexual direction. And I kind of discovered that I could fantasize and sort of like wind down from the day. And so of course, from there, I discovered masturbation and and my addiction kind of grew from there fairly naturally like it does. Um, and this would have been sometime around 13. I remember it wasn't a problem when I was getting ordained to be a deacon, but it was by the time I was getting ordained a teacher. So somewhere in, in that kind of range was where, where it started. Interesting. And so where did it go kind of from there and how was it? Yeah. So we, uh, my parents had pretty good locks on the computers. So mm-hmm. thankfully I, I never really got into very hardcore pornography type stuff, but I, I pretty quickly got to the point where I was doing what I could to get around the filter, which would Mm -hmm. be things like maybe looking at screenshots from video games or, um, or sometimes ads in the newspaper. That was back when we still got a newspaper and and it Mm -hmm. would come with ads that had some, you know, women in lingerie and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember you know, football games and being interested in the, in the, the cheerleaders and things like that on the, on the sides of the game and um, stuff like that. So it kind of grew, it grew to a point where my parents noticed it. I probably, I think my mom noticed a search that I'd done online and asked me about it. And and so at that point I kind of opened up and I don't remember how long it had been, but I don't think it had been a year yet. So we're still kind of in that 13 to 14 year old range. So that's when I first started, uh, first went to talk to a bishop. And I think my experience there is, is not, is fairly typical as well in that I probably told him most things, but maybe held back the worst. I, I think at that point I stopped taking the sacrament for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the pattern I fell into was when it came time for, you know, the next priesthood ordination or an event like that, usually I could white knuckle long enough to, to get there. And then once that deadline was passed, I'd fall back into it. Uh, at one point we were, we were living in Colorado and my mom got a therapist that I was working with. And I probably had one of my best stretches as a teenager. Um, and then we moved, lost contact with that therapist. And it kind of came back just as much as it had been before. So uh, my, my teenage years were very much a like bouncing back and forth between white knuckling, but most, but, but struggling, if not, if not daily, like to some version, at least weekly for, for a lot of it. Um, and some, some bishops said, yeah, let's not take the sacrament for a bit. I had one who kind of said, let's, uh, I think the phrase he used was self-regulate, which basically was like, Hey, if you've had an issue this week, don't, if you've been fine, then do. And, and unfortunately I kind of misused that and basically just went silent and just kind Mm -hmm. of was like, well, I guess I'm just going to not, not be open about it. Yeah. And I know, you know, my, my 
parents, my mom has particularly tried to tried to continue following up with me, but particularly as an older teenager, I think I just kind of stopped for the most part being open about it and just kind of kept it as my problem. Yeah, no, that's pretty similar, honestly, to my story in that um, I definitely, you know, came out, told people about it and just quickly kind of went back in my shell, you know, and, and I think a lot of that just had to do with, um, I don't know, like some of it for me was I wasn't seeing any success and people were expecting success or I felt like that around me. Yeah, pretty similar in those ways. And um, so it seems like primarily um, you were kind of from your bishop, it was like using, they were using the sacrament sort of as like a, like a discipline. Pretty much. It, it centered around that, like temple as well, kind of by extension. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely, I mean, and I, I have a different relationship with the bishops now, but as a, by the end of my teenage years, I was fairly jaded as far as yeah. bishops being a source of help. Yeah. I recognize now that bishops that support people fill different roles. Mm-hmm. And a bishop is not a is not there for your recovery. They're there for your repentance, and yeah. that that support people and sponsors and the twelve step program and therapists are there for for recovery. So I was, you know, not understanding their role really, but of course I also wasn't being completely honest and the things like that 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 would have let them probably help me more. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so it sounds like your parents knew, your bishop knew, kind of going through through your youth and, and different ordinations and stuff. Tell me where things went from there. So at this point, we're probably getting towards mission, yeah. um, which of course is, is another big break point. And I know the, the bishop didn't have a problem with it, but when I got to the stake president, he said, oh yeah, let's, let's kind of hold off. Mm. And at this point, I was at, at college. And so it was sort of, I mean, I'm sure, I think I gave some excuse to my parents of like, oh, he just wants to, he just wants me to come back in a couple of weeks, like make sure I'm really ready. So, you know, something mm-hmm. completely uh, bogus like that. And I, I, anyway, I, you know, white knuckled until then and, and kind of got cleared to go and was good. And actually um, I relapsed the night before my mission, which mm-hmm. looking back is not surprising to me because it's, yeah. you know, negative emotions just fuel this addiction. And of course I'm sitting there, I can't sleep because I'm nervous and excited and overwhelmed and all these things. And so I started my mission with that hanging over me. And, um, I, I served my mission in England. So I went to the England MTC. So it started with a, with a flight over to there and, um, pretty quickly within, within that first week at the MTC, I went and talked to the, the mission, uh, the, I guess he's not a mission president, but whoever, the, the equivalent for the MTC. And, and he was another person who fell on the side of being more lenient, like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're going to be okay here. Like, yeah. I, I think he gave me, you know, some kind of generalities and said, thanks for talking to me. We're good here. And mm-hmm. so I, I continued on my mission. At one point, I had a pretty rough experience that ended up with some of the other missionaries that I was living with being sent home just once again, kind of the negative emotions with that brought it back a little bit. Talked to my mission president who was sort of on the other side of, he was maybe a little heavy on the justice side Mm -hmm. of, well, I wasn't threatened with being sent home or anything like that. I was, it was suggested that that was a reason why we weren't having as much success as we should. And some things like that. Um, that was probably the main incident on my mission, other ones, but for the most part, my mission was, was a fairly good time for my addiction as it is, I think, for a lot of people. And then within a couple of weeks of, of getting home, I had an experience where I was left alone at the house. 
drifted right back and suddenly I'd relapse and I was like, what's going on? I just got back from a mission. Like, how could I fall back so quickly? Uh, I've since realized that's not particularly unusual as well. Like return yeah. missionaries are a very vulnerable group that way, especially those of us who struggled beforehand, but it felt like a pretty crushing, shameful thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, from there, I, I did do better as a young adult than I did as a teenager mm-hmm. where it wasn't, it wasn't a thing that I was dealing with constantly, but I still struggled with it. Really. I don't remember necessarily meeting with the Bishop a lot. I, I think I, I did meet with the Bishop at one point. It's kind of silly to remember it, but I think I was dating somebody and it wasn't going well. And I was kind of like, Oh, maybe if I, if I am honest with the Bishop, like, my relationship will go better, which is, which is mm-hmm. kind of silly. And of course it didn't, but yeah. it, anyway, it got me talking to the Bishop again. And shortly after that, I met my wife or, you know, the Sarah, who's now my wife. And we had a fairly quick, quick courtship is kind of a situation where we, we both knew we wanted to get married, but of course I had this kind of hanging over me. And I really respect the guys I've met who were upfront and honest about with this, with their, with their future spouses, but that wasn't, I wasn't in that place yet. And mm-hmm. so I just, I didn't tell Sarah anything about it. I was working with that Bishop and talked to him and he, I remember he was a little like unsure, but he was like, yeah, it sounds like it's in a place where we can go forward. And his hesitance about it was like, well, I'm not telling the stake president. Cause I remembered mm-hmm. back when I was a missionary and the Bishop had been fine, but the stake president wasn't. And it felt like the, uh, the stakes were too high. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we went ahead with our, with our marriage and I kind of thought, well, I've made it like everything's good now. Um, another pretty common misconception with this addiction. And of course, I, I think for like six months I was, and then it came back and, and it's, you know, I spent several years kind of in that same pattern of like, it's not always here, but it, then it comes. And when it comes, it comes kind of hard. And I did end up opening up to Sarah I think the first time was I was worried that she knew. And so I wanted to tell her, I wanted her to hear it from me rather than her having to call me out. And I think it turns out she was just having a rough day or something. But once again, I mean, at least good, it got it out in the open. And so she was always really supportive. I think it probably helped that I, I sugarcoated it um, as you often do and, and didn't tell the worst things. Um, I was always more concerned about the masturbation element of it. Um, just because even though I did use kind of soft core pornography, I didn't, you know, I wasn't looking at, at, at fully nude type things. And so in my head, it was not a pornography addiction. And so that's how I sort of uh, presented it to her was like, this isn't good, but at least it's not that. And, and so then over the next couple of years, as it continued to be a problem every couple, you know, every month or two, Uh, And maybe I was confessing to her every six months or so. I eventually hit a point. I, you know, there was nothing in particular about the relapse that prompted it, but it was kind of this like, you know what, this is never going to get better the way I'm doing this. It's never going to change unless I do something different. And at that point, I, I found a book that convinced me I needed to go to 12 steps pretty much. And that's where, where I started attending 12 steps. And so that's probably seven years ago or so. Uh, it's probably a miracle that I continued because actually my first experience was, was really poor. It was a very snowy day in Colorado and I was one of three participants who showed up. 
And uh, the other two, I think one of them was in his 50s and the other one was in his 60s. And the one in his 60s clearly had some like mental difficulties and stuff and like wasn't really all there. And the guy in his 50s, when it was his turn to share, didn't even talk about his addiction at all. It was just like giving us an update on his life. But something about going to the meeting, even though it was like maybe the worst meeting I've been to out of hundreds of meetings at this point, it still kind of sparked a little hope. And I went back the next week and, um, and you know, kind of grown from there. So that's, that's an awesome story. First time story. I feel like my first time story was like so powerful, so cool. There was, you know, a dozen people there, all of them just being, you know, awesome uh, people, to, you know, and telling about their stories and stuff. So um, that's cool that you kept going. So did you just consistently keep going like, you know, to, to the present day or did you kind of up and down and, and tell us kind of, um, yeah, how you kind of found sobriety and stuff and, and just where that went as well? Yeah. So I went, I've gone pretty consistently since then. So at that point I was yeah. in Colorado. So there was not a lot of selection. It was basically like, you know, here's your stake. There's a meeting on Tuesday and a meeting on Thursday. And the meeting on Tuesday is specifically for pornography. The meeting on Thursday is kind of general. So I went to the Tuesday one, um, pretty much the only times I didn't go, I stopped briefly for tax season. Um, mm -hmm. at that point I'm working at a big, a big firm and just don't have the flexibility to do something like that. Yeah. But as soon as tax season was over, I'd be back. And so that was probably, probably about two years attending that group. It was one unfortunate thing about that group is that there was no facilitators. There was nobody who had the, oh, wow. um, the sobriety to kind of lead the meeting. Like we were all struggling. So I mean, another kind of like, well, I look back, like, you know, I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it because uh, there, there would have been a lot of reasons not to. I ended up sharing my step four and five with the, uh, the missionary assigned to the group just because I didn't feel like there was somebody else there who, who was in a place that they could hear it. And, and maybe also because I just wasn't really will, willing to get out of my shell. And that seemed like yeah. an easy option. But then uh, after about a, a couple of years, we moved to Utah, where, of course, there's a whole lot more selection. We were temporarily living in Provo. So I went to the BYU meetings, which were, you know, 50 guys there every night. And you kind of divide into smaller groups. So it was really mm -hmm. hard to get to know anybody. But yeah. somebody in that group shared like, oh, I there's this site you can email and they'll kind of, they've, they've got, a, got a program you can do, a free program. They'll assign you a sponsor. They'll run you through the program. And it was kind of this, you, you worked with a sponsor. They had, it was very regimented. It was like mm -hmm. first thing in the morning, you get up, you read your scriptures, you do your step work. Like this is the assigned step work for the day. You'll read this, you'll comment on it. You'll do it on a shared Google doc that you and your sponsor can see. Last thing at night, you do your journal entry that is also on a shared doc that they can see once a week you, you talk. And if you relapse at all, you start at the beginning of the program. And this is, it was a six month kind of thing. So it was actually quite good for me. It got me into the, into like really ingrained a scripture study habit and a journal habit that have served mm -hmm. me well. And I got all the way through, this was my second time working through the steps because I had done them kind of on my own. But this is my first time doing them with somebody else. So I'm doing them with this sponsor, kind of the way this program outlines them. And a lot of that was very helpful. Some of it I liked better the way that I did it the first time. And I had a relapse when we were like in the last couple of weeks of the six month program. And mm -hmm. on a scale of relapses, it was extremely minor to the point where I'm not sure everybody would consider it a relapse. 
but I decided it was, and I, I told my sponsor and they're like, well, okay, well, I mean, that means I can't be your sponsor anymore. And you've got to start the program over with another sponsor. At this point, I was consistently going about six to eight months between relapses and they were fairly minor when they happened. And I didn't feel like I wanted to start at step one and go through again. So I decided I wouldn't do that. And I'd been continuing to attend the 12 step meetings. So I was just doing that. I still wanted a sponsor. And there was one guy at the meeting I was attending who was uh, sort of the facilitator of the group. He was, I think the only other person who was more sober than I was. So I asked him about being a sponsor, if he would be willing to sponsor me. And he actually said no, which was one of those things you always kind of worry about. And really it wasn't that bad because he's like, it's nothing personal. It's just my wife really doesn't like how much time I'm spending on this already. And I can't add more. And so at this, at that point, I felt like my options were kind of out. Like there weren't other people who could provide that support. Um, But thankfully I was sort of on the tail end of my addiction anyway. I mean, obviously addiction sticks with you for your life, but I was towards the end of my, of my recovery. And so I did get a therapist at that point. And between him and my wife's support and the meetings I was attending from there, I've been sober. Um, That was around the time that I started attending the meeting where I met you, where we got to go with our wives. And Mm -hmm. so it's a a very unique meeting that we're kind of pilot testing where both spouses were there. And and those meetings were, were, were extremely good out of all the meetings I've attended over the years. I always thought those were right up towards the top and, and probably had something to do with, with the recovery as well. Katie and I have loved those meetings. Um, and we, you know, I've, now that I've, I've facilitated other meetings and, and done different types of things. I, I personally agree. And I think a lot of that for me has to do with being there with your spouse, them hearing your side, you hearing their side and just, kind of the humility and stuff that comes with that among other things. So, yeah. So um, you were going to those meetings, had some sobriety that you were kind of finding where had things gone from there up until now? From there to now, pretty quickly into that new group about that time, the time that one started, because I followed one of the missionaries who had been doing the other meeting I was at, I followed him to that meeting Mm -hmm. and he had been talking to me about being a facilitator Mm-hmm. Um, at, at that point, I was over 100 days sober, which is an imperfect measurement, but it was sort of what they felt was a baseline to be a facilitator. Mm-hmm. And I think they only had one, and it was a fairly big group. So they, they, we often split, and, and they wanted to have more flexibility. So my wife and I did become facilitators. We were pretty, my wife in particular was very nervous about it because she had only attended a couple meetings up to that point, just had kind of, it was sort of my thing, not her thing. And had only gone a couple times when I had had bad relapses and encouraged her to, to go. So we, we did that and it was, you know, kind of awkward at first, but it's really not that hard. And so pretty quickly we started doing that. We were still kind of the junior facilitators, uh, the, the other couple that was there, he'd been sober for years and had actually uh, referred me to the therapist that I'd used. And, and so we really deferred to them a lot and just tried to, more or less copy what they were doing, but we loved the group we were with and we felt like it was a really tight group and people appreciated what we were doing. And along the way, a couple people started asking me to sponsor them. So initially 
because I had sort of left with a bad taste in my mouth about the way my sponsoring experience had gone, I was very much like, great, you tell me what you want me to do. And I will, I will be that. If you mm-hmm. want someone to call, someone to text, if you just want someone to reach out to when you're struggling, I'll be whatever you want to be. Like, I'm not going to be the guy that tells you how you do your recovery. I'm just going to support you how you want to be supported. Um, so sort of just the pendulum swing completely to the other end. And what I found was that didn't really work because usually people at that point in recovery don't quite know what they need. And so they really wanted somebody not to plan out their whole recovery, but somebody to, to help them and give them more direction than, than what I was offering there. So I kind of fell back into doing it somewhat the way that it had been done with me, which was like, well, let's set up some Google Docs. You can record your notes on it. You can share your journal with me. You can send me a daily text, that kind of thing. And then it sort of evolved from there. I've sponsored probably over a dozen people, but only a couple of them, like I really sponsored, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them would say, I want you to be my sponsor. Let's do it. And then they'd hit step four and they would just trail off, stop coming to the meetings, stop responding to texts. I mean, step four in particular is kind of that way, but yeah, um, I just have kind of had that experience a lot that, that a lot of people who ask me to sponsor are not still really doing it a month later. And I don't know if that's because maybe their expectation is that a sponsor is going to, you know, come in and fix everything. Or maybe I think in some cases, a spouse is pressuring them to get a sponsor. And so they, they check that box, but then I'm asking them to, to, to do stuff that they just aren't quite ready to do. Um, and, and over the years of doing that, it's kind of, I've, I've changed a lot of the way I approach it, but these days I sort of have a list of core behaviors that I ask people to, to do before they want, want to be sponsored just to make sure they're really ready for it. And it's going to be a good use of their time and a good use of my time, because I feel like having somebody sponsor you is great. But if you're not studying your scriptures every day, if you're not studying the 12, like doing something from the 12 steps every day, if you're not working on that, and if you're not praying every day, like those things are going to help way more than a sponsor will. So that's, those are essentially the three things that I ask people to do that, that and daily accountability, some sort of a, usually in the form of a text. And I often encourage people to try and figure out a, a daily journaling and exercising and like a weekly call to me, but I don't make those like conditions of, of sponsoring. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to cross it to the point where I'm demanding too much, you know, that there is still a personal journey to be had, but I've, I felt like that's sort of the middle ground that I've fallen into with that. And, and at this point, I'm still, I'm still sponsoring. I'm still facilitating a, a weekly call-in meeting. You, you and I are, are alternating on that, yeah, being the facilitators. Yeah. And my wife, about once a month or so, facilitates a, a wives call-in meeting. And we're looking yeah. forward to in-person meetings coming back. Although I don't know how much longer I'll continue to be like a, a week-in, week-out kind of facilitator. I really appreciate this program and what it's done for me. Um, at this point, I'm about four years sober and I've been facilitating for most of that time. And it's probably not something I'll do, you know, my whole life. So I don't know yeah. where that, that break point is, but for now we're, 
enjoying it and I'm still getting something out of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your experiences. I would like to dive in maybe just a little bit more on that sponsor topic. Um, And you had some great points that I just kind of want to drill in a little bit more on. Specifically, I guess I I just would like to start by defining like what a sponsor is and like what is your definition of a sponsor? So I would say a sponsor is a a support person whose main role is to guide you through the process of recovery through the 12 steps. So it should be, it should be a recovering addict, not a family member or a bishop or a therapist. Although Mm -hmm. those are all important roles that you should have as well, but a a sponsor is specifically somebody else who's worked the steps and their main role is to share their experience of how they worked the steps to provide support when you're feeling tempted to, to be the person who's kind of been there before and can, can help you in a way that people who haven't been there before can. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And in terms of like timing, what stage in recovery do you feel like people should seek out a sponsor? Do you think there is a stage or is it just unique or should they do it day one? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think once somebody is doing those core behaviors, if, if you're willing, if you're already working the steps every day, um, and you're attending a meeting every week, I feel like you can, you can reach out to a sponsor immediately. I don't, cause the thing is like a sponsor is really helpful, especially on steps four and five and eight and nine. I think they're helpful in other steps as well, but, but fairly crucial there. And most people who are really working the steps get to those steps four and five within a month of starting. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there's, like a, a time you have to wait. I've definitely helped people who are much further in the process. And at that point, it's a different, it's different help than when you help somebody early on. Somebody mm-hmm. late in the process maybe has already done the steps. And so it's more just like trying to help figure out what those last couple things are. Whereas somebody early on is just starting. And I feel like I've been able to help people at that stage a whole lot more but also it's the people at that stage who have a tendency to not stick with it because they're not quite ready yet. So I, it's a really hard, hard question. I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say. You know, if you think there's a, where you've seen people do better there, but I, I think it's more about the effort people are willing and ready to put into it than where they are in the process or the steps. Yeah, no, I love that. I think you make a lot of good points there. Um, similar to you, I, I mean, you've got a lot more experience. I've, I've been doing the sponsoring kind of thing for maybe, um, just a little over two years now, or just a little under two years. And what I've seen is, yeah, I think a lot of the people that I have sponsored have been really early on, like either they're, you know, they've been coming to the the meetings for maybe a month or two, um, or they're just starting on the steps or, you know, they don't know what a sponsor is and I explain it to them. And then they're like, oh yeah, like, let's do that. I would love to, you know, have that. And what I've noticed is that those people kind of like you said, um, some of them maybe aren't ready and, you know, I help them initially as a sponsor and it becomes more of a, like, you know, come back to me when you, when you're kind of ready to, to push forward or I lose them in step four, like you, that has happened to me quite a bit of just people get getting stuck in step four. And um, that's why like my advice on step four is just to like, get through it. Like that's my biggest, you know, however you do it, just get through it. Um, yeah. But I, I have a, a quick comment on that. I've never had anybody yeah. get through step four who wasn't working on it, like basically daily. 
Yeah. Like yeah, even the people who are like, oh, I, I'm going to work on it once a week. I'm going to get through it. I, I just don't hear from those people because a month yeah. passes and they're, you know, they're getting a start on it. Whereas the guy that's been working on it for 10 minutes a day, every day, he's done in that month and he's yeah. ready to, to move on. And, and that was my experience as well. That's why that's one of those things that I feel like is so important before you or, or alongside getting a sponsor is that there's some sort of daily effort, like a once a week meeting is great. And even like once a week work on your own is great. That's what I did to start, but I didn't truly recover until I was working every day. And, and that's, I think really crucial. That's been the difference between the people who have stuck with it and recovered and the people who have asked for my help and then trailed off a month later. Yeah. I, I love that. I totally agree. And when I asked you to be my sponsor, um, I was, I don't remember, maybe step seven, step eight. So mm-hmm. I had worked through, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. And um, I, I, I don't know, there was a beauty to that relationship where, you know, I was kind of serious about it at that point. And I was able to go weeks or months without relapsing. And it was sort of like this, you know, I'm ready. I'm a little bit maybe more mature in the program, more mature in like, I actually want this. I'm not just showing up because my wife told me to stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. I do think that really helped me to take things seriously and like be serious about my weekly phone calls with you. um, And just asking, like when I asked for your help, I was like, I really wanted it. And like, I really was looking for advice, not just, oh, I hear that, you know, a sponsor is a good thing maybe you can help me. I don't, it was like me, like, I really want to make sure that I'm doing step eight, right. Step nine, right. Talk to me about step 10, 11. Like what, what can I do in step 12? It was, you know, like that for me at least. Yeah. And I think that makes a big difference. The willingness you brought to it. I would say on the other side, when I look at what I did with you versus what I've done with some other people, I look at kind of our relationship and and I don't feel like maybe I did as much as some of those people where I started at the beginning. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, you were already 90% of the way there. And so I just, you know, watched and occasionally made a comment as you worked the last 10. Whereas some other people like who I picked up on step one and like brought through the whole process, like that was a very different experience than just like working with you on the last couple of things. Yeah. I, I feel like other things that you did also helped me, which were, um, you called it like bookending where I would tell you. I don't know if I was going to be alone or out of town or something like that. And it was kind of a vulnerable time. I'd tell you at the beginning and then at the end as well, and just kind of, you know, bookend this experience where I could let you know if I needed anything, reach out to you, kind of just like preemptively come at something really in like a very cautious way. And I feel like that was one of the most helpful things. Uh, And it was like so small, but like it helped me get through like business trips and, you know, my wife being gone or, um, you know, being at school, dealing with finals, like stuff like that. I feel like that was so helpful to me. So I feel like, you know, apart from working through the steps, giving advice there and stuff like that, um, those were the types of things that I found a lot of help with, as well as when I would relapse um, or something would happen, like being able to talk to you about it um, and specifically talk to you about it so that I could, you know, then have like either the courage or the, the dialogue to like talk with my wife about it. So those were really helpful things to me as well. Kind of a, a funny story about the, that book ending idea. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the, the place I got that from was a diet I was doing at the time. It wasn't even <laughs> from like 
you know, addiction recovery uh, materials. It was something, it was something from a diet and it just happened to, to work well with addiction too. So that was yeah. just a kind of funny coincidence of, of something else I was doing at the time. Yeah. What do you feel about like who, um, other than someone who's gone through the program, someone who's worked kind of the steps, someone who's a little more sober than you, do you feel like there are any like who qualifications for like someone of like, um, I don't know, for me, like when I made my sponsor list, I, I wrote down all this of like all these people. And for me, like the most important thing on there was other than more sober than me, knew more than me, was that I, I felt like I could be vulnerable with them. Is there anything else like you feel like in looking for a sponsor that people should look for, I guess? So this is maybe not answering your question directly, but one mm-hmm. of my pet peeves when it comes to, to getting a sponsor is the person who, who during their share in the meeting says, hey, I'm looking for a sponsor. Come talk to me after the meeting if you're willing to sponsor. <laughs> yeah. and, and don't get me wrong. I think that's better than not getting a sponsor at all. Yeah. But that comes from a place of being the person who's answered that call several times. And then having that person, those people have never really worked out. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to being vulnerable and going to somebody and saying, Hey, I am picking you. Are you okay? Will you pick me back rather yeah. than just saying, Hey, anybody here willing to do it? Like I'll take, I'll take anybody with a pulse who's willing. I do think there's a tendency because most of these groups, there tends to be the people who are starting their recovery and then like the facilitator and like maybe there's usually not tons and tons of people to choose from in your group. Yeah. So I, I feel like people like you and me who are usually the facilitators in the group tend to be the default option. But I would always say it should be somebody who, when they share, you're interested and inspired rather than like you're annoyed or like, oh, l- listen to what this guy's going off on again. Yeah. Like y- you never want to pick that guy just because he's the only option because you're it's not going to help. You'd be better off finding somebody who maybe is more similar to where you're at in the program and saying, let's be accountability partners or something like maybe, Hmm. maybe you can't sponsor me, but we can support each other. And, you know, we can share and and build each other better than just going to somebody who's got a year of sobriety, but who rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I love that. I guess for me also kind of building on that, I, I feel like, just that a sponsor kind of about your like accountability person, what you were saying about that. I just feel like a sponsor can help you work through hard moments, vulnerable times, work through the steps, be accountable. I just feel like it's, it's just important that you find someone that you can turn to when it's hard and turn to um, each day as well. And, and just be open with and just sort of share your recovery with in, in a sense. And like you were saying earlier, I think just success in my mind comes from, people who are willing to be diligent about that and stay the course and not um, kind of give up or, or slack on that too much. And that's, that's where I've seen, you know, whoever it is as a sponsor, that's what I've seen success come from. I agree. I think it's important to realize how much time you're going to spend interacting with a sponsor. Yeah. Um, Particularly if it's somebody that you're picking up early in the process, Mm -hmm. I've probably had a couple people, who I've worked with over the course of a couple of years. And it's not like, you know, hours and hours a week, but it's probably people who I interact with on average for half an hour to an hour a week for, for several years. And sometimes it's been like, I I've tried 
like doing calls with people every night where I've probably interacted with them for four hours in a week, you know, yeah. so you have to pick, you have to pick somebody that you're going to be able to, to do that with. They don't have to be your best, your best friend, but somebody that, somebody that you're okay to spend that kind of time interacting with. Yeah. Well, and that also makes me think, I feel like I hear a lot people tell me, you know, I don't want to be a burden on you or, you know, just let me know if it's too much or whatever. And I, as a sponsor, and I'm sure this is true for most people, but I feel like when I take someone on as, um, you know, to be their sponsor, I am willing to put in the work. I am willing to put in the time and it's not a burden for me. And I remember you saying this a lot to me too, Jason, that you get something out of it. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I always get something out of sponsoring people. And so I feel like I, I tend to have that kind of uh, mentality of, oh, I'm probably being a headache for them. So maybe I won't reach out to them, but you know, just anyone who is looking for a sponsor using a sponsor, I don't think that you should feel like that. I think that you should recognize that, you know, this person is, is okay with you reaching out to them. And I would prefer someone reach out to me 10 times more rather than 10 times less is if it gets them out of, out of their addiction. You know what I mean? I totally agree. I have no problem with the guy that reaches out the only time where people become a burden is where they start phoning it in, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're going through the motions where they're like, well, I need to text him because I've got to be accountable. And so the texts I'm getting are just like travel logs of their life. They're, they're not even about, uh, about addiction anymore. And I'm, and I'm starting to like feel them slipping away, but they're still asking, asking for my time on their recovery when they're not working on them. But, yeah. but I never have a problem with somebody who is saying, Hey, I'm still struggling I know I reached out 10 minutes ago, but it didn't work. Like what, you know, do you have a moment to talk? That's never the kind of thing that, that is going to be a problem for me. And sometimes when I'm busy and I'm at work and I'm meeting with a client, I can't stop and do that, but I'm going to call that person back as soon as I can. And, and that part of it, I agree. That part of it is not a burden. As long as the, the person is doing their part, I'm, I'm always happy to do it. And it does keep me grounded in my own recovery. And it reminds me of, of things I've forgotten because that's just the nature of, of this journey is it's, it's such a big journey. That's full of so many tiny steps that you forget a lot of the steps that you took and, and you get to sort of relive your recovery alongside other people. And so that's, I think the really beautiful part of sponsoring is that it is very meaningful to the sponsor when the person they're helping is grateful and is fully utilizing it. So, so it's almost a better experience for me when, when somebody is fully utilizing my help rather than hedging and saying, well, I don't want to, I don't want to bother him. Don't worry about bothering me. I just, if I'm busy, I just won't call you back until I'm free. And, and that's the extent of it, you know? Yeah, I agree. Couldn't agree more. Do you have any other thoughts on sponsors? Any other things that you, you'd you want to say about, you know, that subject specifically? You know, nothing really comes to mind. I just, one thing I saw particularly in our, uh, in our group where people were meeting, were coming with their wives is there was a tendency to, to put that role on the wife sometimes. Um, I think that's a particularly dangerous thing to do. Like, I know it's hard to reach out to, to somebody else, but I think there's, uh, there's so much to gain from reaching out to somebody who's been through it. And there's so much to lose by trying to make your spouse, be the person who has to sit and hear your step four and five or who has to, to try and do some of that stuff. Cause they, they need to do their own healing. And that was a decision Sarah and I made, and I know it's, it's worked fine for other people. 
So that's not directly on sponsorship, but that's just sort of a, a adjacent in the idea of the roles that different support people play. That's one I yeah. have a, a strong opinion on. I, I agree. I found the same thing to be true. And unfortunately, I feel like I spent too much of my recovery with Katie as my support, like my my sponsor, uh, not just my support person as my wife. And um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't change too much for my recovery because I'm where I'm at today. But I do think, I do think that there is a role and it, it allowed my wife when I found you as a sponsor, it allowed my wife to, to be a wife again and not, not following up with me all the time and, and asking me about things and doing stuff. It, it allowed her to trust that I was talking to you and she could um, do what she needed to do. So I completely agree on that point. Oh, I wanted to ask you, Jace, too. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about, I just keep forgetting what you called it. Um, oh, uh, yeah. It was yeah, an intriguing so, word. And so I kind of wanted to hear more about it. The idea of surrendering temptation. So even though I'm coming up on four years sober, I still struggle with temptation. And it's typically this idea of like waves of temptation. I don't know. That was a particularly helpful metaphor for me. I don't know if this has been your experience as well, but it's like, you know, I, I frequently go several months without really any serious temptation. And what I found probably in the last year specifically, it seems to be mostly tied to not sleeping well. If I have a night where I can't fall asleep or a night where I wake up and can't get back to sleep, or if I wake up early and don't feel well, that's when I seem to be fairly vulnerable. And so I've, I've had this, I had one of those waves a couple of weeks ago where I wasn't sleeping well. And I just, over the course of a couple of days, kept having, kept having these temptations to fantasize and, and let my mind wander. And I was reading back through one of my, one of the, the books that I got over the course of recovery. And it was talking about this idea of surrendering your temptations. And it was one of those like, oh, yeah, I remember that was really helpful for me. I just haven't thought about it in a while. And the idea is essentially when you, because the impulse when you get a temptation is to fight, you're either going to surrender to the temptation and give in, or you're just going to fight it tooth and nail. And my experience when I fight it tooth and nail is eventually it wears me down and I surrender to the temptation. So it's just, and, and, and if you're strong enough, you can white knuckle for a while, but the temptation isn't really, doesn't really go away because I fight it. And so what this, what this book was advocating was to, to surrender the temptation, not surrender to it, but surrender it in this case to God through prayer. And the way that, that I've gone about that is by having a prayer where I essentially recognize that temptation. And then I surrender it by basically saying, you know, I'm placing this on, I'm giving this to you. I am going to do everything I can not to think about it. I'm not going to act on it, but if you can take this and replace it with peace and just help me get back to what I'm doing, you know, that, and that's kind of the prayer. And sometimes I have to do that multiple times, but I just found after having a period of a couple days where just sort of some nagging thoughts that I was having trouble shrugging that, that remembering this technique and going back to instead of trying to overpower it with my recovery or my, my power to just step back and say, nope, I'm not going to, I don't have the strength to fight it. So I'm not going to, I'm going to give it to somebody who does. Um, and I found that really helpful recently. And I, it was, it was a big part of my recovery as well. Just one of those little things that I had forgotten over time. Yeah, that's awesome. It reminds me a lot about 
what has helped me so much, which is kind of just very similar of praying for God to replace things, temptations with peace. And I, I think what it just, to me, what it did, it did two things. And I think you kind of mentioned, you know, elements of these, but one, it, it allowed God's power into my life and for him to push me through it. And two, in a sense, it got me out of isolation and got me out of myself. And I feel like for me also reaching out to people does kind of similar things of, I am not strong enough. So I'm going to talk to my sponsor, to my wife, to uh, go to a meeting and, and talk to people about it. So I do feel like there are so many elements of like power in, in those, in surrendering temptation. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I, I think you make a good point that there's, there's other things that you need to do, right? Getting up and, 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 and physically leaving the place where you're at, talking to other people. These are all other important things to do when you're feeling tempted, but it's just a, a part of my arsenal. And I mm-hmm. like to think of it this way that, that over the years, I've put so many things into my, into my brain, into my head. Um, like, and, and those get, you know, those can get called, called back up to tempt me. And, and with this sort of approach and with this, this prayer, essentially what I'm doing is I'm asking God not just to remove the temptation now, but like take that video that's playing in my head and, and, and take the whole thing so that this particular thing doesn't tempt me again. And it doesn't always, you know, work that cleanly, but that's, that's kind of how I've thought of it. Um, and, and since I'm referencing, it, I want to take a moment to give credit to the, the, actual, the actual book here which is uh, Clean Hands, Pure Heart by, oh, by Philip Harrison is, is where I was reading about that. So uh, there are lots of great books out there, but, but that's among them. And, and that's where that thought came. I, I want to make sure to not take, take any credit for it, but something that I thought was particularly helpful. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's a really helpful. Um, just another tool to put in the tool belt, another uh, weapon to put in the arsenal. So I appreciate you sharing that. And just to kind of round off this interview, I want to ask you, what advice would you give to someone who is kind of early in their recovery, um, going through it and just kind of, yeah, at at the stage, maybe feeling hopeless, feeling they're never going to get out of this. You know, what advice would you have for someone in that situation? That's a difficult question to answer because uh, recovery is, is such a, a big, a big thing that it can feel very hopeless. I would say it comes down primarily to one thing though, which is when I learned to pray and receive revelation for myself, that was a turning point in my recovery because all of these things we're talking about getting a sponsor and working the steps and all these things, these are so important. And as you're doing your best, you can pray and get revelation on what's the next little thing you need to add. And once I learned to do that, then it no longer became searching out the magic bullet that was going to stop this. It was about what's the next little step I take and then the next little step and the next little step. And then after a year, you look back and you realize you've built this whole staircase out of the, of the pit that you're in. And it does feel hopeless at the bottom of that pit but I think there's some hope in recognizing that if you can just pray and receive a tiny bit of guidance every day, and even maybe you don't feel super guided every day, but you get it here and there, you take a moment to listen during your prayer and you get that little next step. If you can learn to do that 
everything else sort of follows because one day you'll get the prompting that, oh yeah, you've been neglecting your 12 steps and you got to get back to that. Another day you'll get the prompting that, you know, you really should reach out to a sponsor or you haven't been doing your scripture reading like you should have, or maybe it's time to do that exercise program. And so instead of having to keep this massive list of like all the things you need to do, you can just know that if you can cultivate a relationship with the Savior Jesus Christ, all of that stuff will follow. And he won't let you forget that little step that's going to mean the difference between a relapse or not. And I think that's what I would say to somebody who's who's feeling hopeless is, hey, the reason you're hopeless is because maybe you're trying to do it all or you're overwhelmed with everything you need to do. Make sure, make sure you've got your partner in this and that you're, you're listening to, to, to him, to the Savior, and, and you're letting him be a part of it because that's where, that's where the hope comes. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, um, I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing your story and, and also talking to us about your experience you know, as a sponsor going through the program. And so it means a lot to me that you'd be willing to come on here. And I, I know that what you said today will have a huge impact on people going through the program themselves. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We would love for you to rate and review this podcast as well as share it with everyone you know. For information about the church's 12-step and support meetings, please visit arp.churchofjesuschrist.org. We encourage everyone to find a sponsor or support person. If you have any questions, feedback, are looking for a sponsor, or would like to be a sponsor, please contact us at sobrietypodcast at gmail.com. We are always looking for more guests, so if you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed, please contact us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.